Welcome to ATBS, the podcast, all things big and small. I'm your host, Jeff Volmerick, and thank you, as always, for joining. Today, joining me remotely in the podship is Dr. Richard Hamilton. Richard has his PhD in molecular biology, and this will be the fifth in a series of episodes under the header epigenetics. So we have done an epigenetic overview, one on nutrition, one on movement, one on mindfulness, and today is on toxins. Hopefully the other episodes have been helpful. They certainly have been to me. I have every reason to believe that this episode will be the same. So we'll dive in with Richard in a moment. And also I encourage you and ask you to support ATBS, the podcast, if you are so inclined by becoming a patron. And you can do that for a couple of dollars a month and you'll get exclusive content. You will get early access to episodes and a number of other great things. Uh, a little tidbit we call some things big and small. You can do that by visiting our website, going to clicking on the patron button, and that will help us achieve our initial goal of breaking even with ATBS, the podcast. Anything you can do is uh, gratefully appreciated. So I hope you enjoy the following episode. Thank you. Matt Seiler here, lover of a good competition. One of the other guests on Jeff's phenomenal podcast threw a gauntlet trying to make his episode the most popular on the phenomenal ATBS, the podcast series. Being the frequent guest on the only subseries, SFAO, I want to make sure that I win. And by winning, Jeff wins. And by Jeff winning, we all win. So please like, share, own, make sure that it gets the popularity it demands as ATBS rules the world. Dr. Hamilton, welcome back to the pod ship. Thank you, Jeff. Always a pleasure to be here. Appreciate it. I think it's worth mentioning today is Father's Day. So happy Father's Day to you, my good friend. Thank you, Jeffrey. Right back at you. One of the things I'm going to do when we're done here is give my dad a call. Yeah, that's always a good thing to do. It's a good thing to do. My sister sent me a picture of our father who passed away a little more than a year ago, sent a great picture and a good reminder. And we're fortunate to be fathers ourselves. So, so toxicology and epigenetics, this is a, an interesting subject as all of these epigenetic episodes have been. This one might be even a little more challenging for me to get my head around it's real easy to think and feel and believe that we're just inundated with toxins and toxicants. And I know we're going to get in really, I think a really good title for this is Toxicology 101 to get us all at least some base knowledge of, you know, where we stand in this world, what we can do, what we really you know, ought to be concerned about, and, and maybe some things that we shouldn't be concerned about. Yeah, I think that's a great start, Jeff. And if, if you look around, you know, just even a cursory 
tour across the internet and look at the preponderance of, you know, cleansing diets, organic food, you know, people are concerned about this. They're worried about it. It's a topic that's front of mind for some segment of the population. And so I think it's good to just, you know, start at kind of a 30,000 foot view and, you know, let's have the conversation about toxicology and probably just start with some simple definitions of, well, what are toxins? And, you know, classically, a toxin is defined as any harmful substance produced by a living organism. And that's in contrast to what we call toxicants, which are substances added to the environment by people. Uh, and so people tend to lump both of these together as, as quote unquote toxins. And so a toxin would be, you know, snake venom or spider venom is a toxin. Alcohol is a toxin. Tobacco without, you know, getting down in the weeds of the specific chemicals within tobacco can be a toxin. Uh, pyrethene is a insecticide that is produced by the chrysanthemum plant and is actually used, sprayed by organic farmers as an insecticide, but it is still right? It is a toxin. It is a harmful substance produced by a living organism. Toxicants, right? Again, are substances added to the environment by people. And here we get into things like asbestos, you know, benzene, pesticide residues. And it's interesting because there's a big difference in perception of those things. It's toxicants. I think there's a, they're high in perception, but probably low in actual risk because you know, frankly, many of the environmental laws that we've put in place over the past, you know, 50 years, you know, your actual exposure to this stuff is pretty low. And so what it does is it exposes an interesting, what I'll call a foible in human psychology that I think maybe we've talked about in the past. And this is sins of omission versus sins of commission, where sins of omission are risks that people feel are being foisted upon them whereas sins of commission are risks that they're willing to take themselves. So they're willing to you know, drive without seatbelts and eat fatty foods and smoke and drink. Those are risks that they feel are under their control versus you know, a sin of omission of, oh, wait a second, you know, there's some trace pesticide on my apple that I can't see and I don't know what it is. And it's a little bit fear of the unknown. Uh, and so that's what leads to this perception, I think, uh, in society. One time, a, a friend of mine, her name is Wendy, and she was telling me about how she bought organic milk because she was afraid of antibiotic residues in the milk. And I explained to her that the penicillin ring, the beta-lactam ring, was going to be degraded in that milk. And you know, if she ever gave her child amoxicillin for an ear infection, they were getting you know, a million-fold higher exposure. And she kind of listened and she was thoughtful about it, uh, but she was still going to you know, buy her organic milk. And then I said to her, you know, Wendy, did you realize that today you exposed your child to the leading cause of death amongst toddlers in the United States, and you're probably going to do it again tomorrow? And she was horrified. By getting in the car, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You put them in a car and drove them. But that is a risk that she feels is completely under her control when the reality is it's not, right? She can be you know, T-boned by some drunk driver or, or whatever. Um, but there's the perception that it's under her control. And so that's something that I think is rife in this field. The takeaway from this little first segment is if you're a person who's concerned about the presence of toxicants in your life, don't stress out about it so much. It may in fact be that the stress of worrying about it is in fact more damaging than the presence of the toxicants themselves. 
you know, and this is just me, my layperson's perspective, but, you know, across the board, ah, that's maybe an overstatement. People seem to worry, like in my family, we talk about designated worriers. I'm not a designated worrier in my family. We have had them. My grandmother was a designated worrier. What are we going to do about so-and-so? What are we going to do about such and such? And well, I think in some ways, what what I'm hearing you say is we'd do a whole lot better if we didn't worry about it so much. And maybe if we, as you said earlier, if we drank more water or, you know, do some of the things that we can do, let's not stress about it. Let's not stress about the things that we can't do anything about. Exactly right. Or the things that, you know, just because you didn't take organic chemistry in college, they, it looks like it's a chemical with a big, long, scary name. Yeah. Okay. Well, somebody who did take organic chemistry has got that figured out. So, you know, calm down. <laughs> I love it. So toxicology 101, I mean, we're already there, but let's, let's dive in. That leads right into kind of another takeaway. If you're listening to this podcast, you know, what do I want to remember tomorrow? The poison is in the dosage. Repeat that just over and over and over again. The poison is in the dosage. The poison is in the dosage. And, you know, the example I will give is, yeah, many times if you're at the grocery store and you're going to go buy salt to go home and put in your salt shaker, you know, there's a brand out there that comes in a kind of a cylindrical blue container, Morton salt. And it's probably what, about a pound of salt that you buy to, you know, bring home and keep in your kitchen cabinets and refill your salt shaker periodically. And if you opened that spout and you sprinkled a little salt onto your finger and ingested it, What's going to happen? You're going to get a salty taste in your mouth and really not too much else. If you ate the entire one pound container of Morton salt, you would be really literally sucking liquid out of your circulatory systems. You'd undergo vascular collapse and you'd probably have a heart attack and die. So, right, something as innocuous as table salt at a very high dose is toxic. And things that are present at very low levels are not. Because many times our body has, and we're going to spend some time talking about DNA repair and your liver and how some of these things work. Your body has mechanisms for clearing these low-level toxins out of your environment. And I'm actually going to come around a little bit later in the podcast to a very contrarian view that says, you know what? Low levels of toxins in your environment are probably actually healthy for you because they agonize or turn on these repair and maintenance systems. So we'll come back to that in the podcast. So poison is in the dosage. Poison is in the dosage. Pretty obvious, I think, to most people that route of exposure matters, right? It, you know, you can have ingestion, right? We just gave the example of eating a pound of salt. Dermal, I'm sure there are people who, you know, undergo salt scrubs at the spa. You could writhe around in that one pound of Morton salt, and it probably wouldn't bother you at all. Inhalation is a, a different route, and your body has different mechanisms for dealing with those toxins, and we'll, we'll talk about that again, I think, a little bit later. I think it's also important, and this is probably not something that people spend too much time thinking about, but you have the endogenous production of toxins. You know, the process of respiration of breathing and using oxygen to oxidize compounds in the mitochondria of your cell generates oxygen radicals that need to be quenched and dealt with and your body has mechanisms to do that 
Another example I would give again for the layperson is lactic acid, something that builds up in your muscles when you're exercising and your muscles can no longer get enough oxygen to conduct aerobic respiration, they will shift and burn sugars in anaerobic respiration in the absence of oxygen, rather than being able to metabolize things all the way to carbon dioxide, you metabolize them to lactic acid. And that of course can build up in your muscles to a point where you, you know, quote unquote, feel the burn and you know, you're no longer able to keep going. So your body produces toxins endogenously. And hopefully we've all felt that, right? Like the epigenetics and movement, which we've covered, right? Hopefully we feel that. And, you know, there's benefit to that, as, as you've said, right? I, I think it's a, what did you say? It's a, it's an area that's really ripe for, for research and study and, you know, how that all works. Right. Uh, cholesterol would be maybe another example. Again, some classical toxicologists would probably disagree with me on cholesterol, but I think it's interesting to kind of push that boundary a little bit. Uh, another one is something called ADP. ADP is uh, an acronym for adenosine diphosphate. And it is a metabolite of ATP, which is adenosine triphosphate. And it's kind of the energy currency of the cell. And these phosphate bonds are very energy rich. And so the body is constantly cleaving ATP to form ADP and then recycling and taking ADP back to ATP to be used again. Interestingly enough, your brain uses a lot of ATP. You know, you've probably heard stuff about you know, how your brain uses, you know, burns a third of your body's calories or things like that. But your brain is a very energy intense organ. And it appears that if you ask yourself, well, why do we sleep? Why do we need sleep? Hmm. <laughs> yeah, we spend about a third of our life doing it. And it appears that a big component of sleep is actually recycling ADP. In other words, ADP gets to the point where there where it says, you know what, the energy toll of maintaining consciousness means that I've I've generated so much ADP that I need to go to sleep so that my body can go recycle that. It's not all toxicants, right? It's not somebody sneaking it in at night to put nuclear waste in your kitchen disposal. That's not it. <laughs> you know, there's some endogenous production of toxins that are just the byproduct of living, right? As, as, as you've heard me say, just the sandpaper of life. <laughs> right. One of our favorites. And I think it's really important for us to digest that. When I say us, I mean, we lay people, which I, you know, I include myself that, hmm, yeah, there are a lot of things happening here that, you know, why do we feel so good once we've had a good night's sleep? <laughs> Probably, you know, having to do with what you just described. You know, it feels good. We feel rested. We feel repaired. We think of it in particular terms, like how do we feel? And thankfully you're here to give us you know, some, you know, molecular biologist perspective, and we appreciate it. Yeah. So we've got that. We've got the poison is in the dosage. We've got this idea that the route of exposure matters. We understand now that, you know, our body's producing some of these own toxins itself. And then let's break it down into, well, what kinds of toxins are there? And there's certainly, you know, metabolic toxins. And these are, again, classically some of the most familiar you're inhibiting some metabolic pathway and it often has a near-term and drastic effect and you know hydrogen cyanide as an example right very short term highly toxic right dose venoms things like that we can have what i'll call dna toxins or carcinogens and these are things that you know damage dna ultraviolet light it damages dna 
interesting. Many phytochemicals, plants produce lots of things that are DNA damaging. We're going to come back around to that. Uh, cigarette smoke, the toxicological impact of them is very long term. Very long term. It's not a you know it's not a short term exposure. And then oh, the next day I've got cancer. It's you're overexposed to UV light over many many years, and then after you know forty years of that, you might develop melanoma. I do want to call out one guy, a fellow by the name of Bruce Ames, who's at the University of California, Berkeley. He is the inventor of something called the Ames assay of carcinogenicity, which he in invented, I don't know, probably 30, 40 years ago now. And if you ask yourself, well, how are we going to assess whether or not a compound or a chemical is carcinogenic? We can't just give it to somebody and then wait 40 years to see if they get cancer. Or the other uh, study is in order to approximate long-term exposure, we're going to go very high doses of short-term exposure. And of course, if you've already listened to this far in the podcast, you realize that maybe that's not the best way to view things. And so Bruce came up with a way of looking at this in a bacteria that was deficient in metabolizing an amino acid called tryptophan. And what he said was, if we treat these bacteria with a carcinogen, some percentage of the time, we're going to get a mutation. We're going to get a change in that DNA. That's what carcinogens do. And that mutation will actually take this bacteria from an inability to metabolize tryptophan all of a sudden to the ability to metabolize tryptophan. So it's a, what we would call a forward or a positive mutation where it was a gain of function. And so he came up with this idea, and this was really kind of a breakthrough in that we could now test chemicals, often at very low levels. We could do it very rapidly in a laboratory environment just to see whether or not they were damaging DNA within the context of a bacterial cell. And so this became very, very standard of practice for assessing the potential carcinogenicity of compounds. So I just wanted to kind of give that explanation. The Ames assay, you've, you've referenced it in other podcasts too, so worth checking out. Yeah, and so then we can also have cellular toxins. If you're having uh, some you know, secondary messenger that's inhibiting a particular class of cells, maybe CD8 T cells can be inhibited by other secondary messengers, um, tabloids and things that you can get in your diet or as a result of your physiology. And again, this is where I start pushing the boundaries of classical toxicology to say, well, is cholesterol a toxin? Yeah, at high enough levels over a long period of time? Yeah. Is insulin a toxin? I mean, it's one of your body's own hormones. But again, most toxicologists' heads are spinning around on their shoulders right now listening to this. But <laughs> it's, again, getting away from this fear of toxicants and focusing a little bit more on toxins and some of the things that we're doing ourselves. And the poison is in the dosage. <laughs> the poison is in the dosage. The poison repeat is in the dosage. Repeat often. So then we can probably segue... I think it's useful for people to, to have, you know, at least mechanistically, an idea of how the body deals with toxins. Because we're not just out there, you know, naked and alone and nothing we can do about it. We've been exposed to toxins, you know, throughout our evolution and we've come up with some pretty good ways of dealing with them. And so, you know, the skin is obviously a pretty good physical barrier against many toxins. We talked earlier about UV light. So, UV light is a toxin, it's a carcinogen at high enough doses. But your, what does your body do uh, upon exposure to UV light? It produces melanin, you get a suntan. 
and melanin absorbs UV light. So I think it's a classic example of how UV light will agonize or turn on a cellular response producing melanin that protects you from the toxin. Okay. And that's really important when we, when we dive into the molecular here, let's keep using a suntan as an example. If you have good melanin production, you're probably protected in the long term from melanoma, from skin cancer. We have nostrils and sinuses and mucous membranes to try and filter out toxins in the air that we breathe. Ingestion, you know, when you eat things, you know, your stomach is a fairly inhospitable place, right? You know, stomach acid. And certainly anything that is, uh, you know, a protein, people worry about, um, oh, what was that stuff? Uh, recombinant bovine somatotropic hormone that Monsanto was using to increase milk production. Well, that's a peptide. It's a protein hormone that when injected into the bloodstream of cows will increase blood production. And it, it doesn't really wind up in the milk, but even if it did, as soon as it hits the acid in your stomach, it it's like scrambling an egg. The protein gets denatured and denatured proteins don't have any physiological effect. And even if you injected that bovine protein into your bloodstream, it's a bovine protein. It doesn't have an effect in humans. So the point is stomach acid is pretty inhospitable to a lot of things. Um, and so that's one kind of line of defense. Your microbiome, we've talked about the incredible flora that you have in your intestines. They also do a good job of metabolizing a lot of things largely to inert substances. They absorb a lot of things as well. So let's just imagine as we're you know kind of following this, you know, you've ingested something, it's somehow managed to survive your stomach acid, it's gotten past the microbiome and it's been absorbed by the microvilli of your intestine and is now in your bloodstream. Oh my goodness, right? What's going to happen next? Well, your blood is being filtered constantly by a couple of organs, namely your liver and your kidneys. And the liver, I mean, you have a, an entire organ dedicated really to dealing with toxicants or toxins in your blood. And your liver has a group of enzymes, and they have a big long name. They're called cytochrome P450s, but you should think of them as little Pac-Men. When they encounter a toxin in the blood, they will take that and they will, it's not so much that they chew it up, but what they'll do is they'll add an oxygen molecule to it. They oxidize it. And in the process of adding that oxygen, that oxygen often comes with an oxygen with a, a hydrogen attached to it, and it makes it more water soluble. It makes these things more easily dissolved in water. These enzymes are very, very promiscuous. So they, you know, toxicological mechanisms didn't evolve towards the specific, they evolved towards the general. So they're very general. They work on broad classes of compounds and they oxidize things. And once they're oxidized, once they're right, they're more water soluble, what do you think your kidneys do with them? We're going to pee them out. Pee them out. Out. And so this is, a, this is a major mechanism that the body has for toxicology. What can you do? You can drink more water. Now, now you're talking my language. Right. You can drink more water. And I'd like to know the numbers. Uh, I, I don't know them off the top of my head. I know things, you know, we can talk about obesity rates in the population. And we talk about how 40% of the U.S. population is vitamin D 
deficient. What percentage of the U.S. population is chronically underhydrated? I imagine it's a huge percentage, especially out west. You know, California in the southwest, Texas, what, whatever. Drink more water, people. I live in Park City, Utah, somewhere between 6,500 and 7,200 feet above sea level. 20% humidity is pretty standard fare, so really dry. And, you know, I've lived here for almost 30 years. If you don't drink water, it doesn't take very long before you feel the effects, right? So, oh, I've got a headache. And at that point, you know, we're way beyond a little bit dehydrated. You know, we're, as I like to say, we're a quart or two low. So I would love to know those numbers too. We've heard a lot. I, I think probably most people have heard, well, you know, you need to drink eight, eight ounce glasses of water a day, 64 ounces. Well, we're not all created equal, right? You know, 125 pound female versus a 200 and, you know, I don't know what you're running at now, but you know, 215 or something It's six foot six. I think it's worth looking into, right? For each individual. And, and this just, this goes to the whole ATBS concept. Like we need to take responsibility for self and how we feel. For me, the number in ounces is about a hundred per day. And I have a water bottle that, you know, that I carry around with me. Most anybody who knows me knows that I've got that with me all the time. At some point it becomes less about the number and more about how I feel. Or if I, if I bump it up and keep a little bit of a track of that over the course of a week or 10 days or a couple of weeks and go, wow, that feels a whole lot better. And I've said this a thousand times, you know, feeling good feels really good. Well, what is it that makes us feel good? And that's going to be different for each of us. So take responsibility for self, tune into how one feels. And that number is going to be that water, that staying hydrated number in ounces is going to be different for each of us. And let's not forget that, you know, even recreational amounts of alcohol are dehydrating, right? We all know this. Coffee as well, right? Coffee is dehydrating as well. And, and so think about what's happening there, right? Your body, you know, for every molecule, you know, just based on how your kidneys work, you know, it costs you a molecule of water every time you're getting rid of one of these other molecules of toxicants, right? And so you've got to be constantly flushing. Another good example, just to you know, bring it home for people, if you, you know, if you take a multivitamin, right? And then, you know, the next time you, you go pee, oh, look how bright yellow that is, right? Well, those are the B vitamins, which are very water-soluble. And, you know, sure, your body's going to absorb some and use some, but a lot of it's just going to get filtered out by your kidneys and you get that bright yellow urine in the toilet. And that's just a good example of your body's toxicological systems working. Not only are you going to do that for a B item, but you're going to do that for any other toxin and certainly any other water-soluble toxin that, you, that you're going to come across. So hydrate, 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 and the poison is in the dosage. <laughs> the poison is in the dosage. The poison is in the dosage. That's, again, kind of a, you know, we're thinking about that now as an example of what I'll call physiological level, you know, the organ level systems that can deal with toxins. We also have molecular level systems that that deal with toxins and, and the one that we should just touch on is this this idea of dna repair and let's just use uv light as the example so uv light can come in and remember from previous episodes we talked about there's you know there's four bases in uh dna there's uh, a c t's and g's and sometimes when you have two t's next to one another you know, an ultraviolet photon will hit them and you'll get a chemical reaction and those things will 
you know, almost like uh, two books get kind of turned up on their ends and form a dimer, a cyclobutane dimer. They get kind of cross-linked to one another, and it causes kind of a bump in your DNA. And that's a, a mutation that then your cells have enzymes that'll come along and they'll be scanning DNA and they'll come along that bump and they'll say, well, this isn't right. And we're going to, they'll literally excise that. They'll cut out those two T's. And then because DNA is double stranded, they'll use the complementary strand to fill it in and say, oh, there's a couple of T's that should go there. And they'll fill in those T's. Um, you could think about a, a bricklayer repairing a wall and oh, and we're, we're repaired and, and off we go. And this is happening all the time. This happens in your body all the time. We believe it's a little bit more prevalent at night, which is why I think it's important to get good sleep, you know, even right down to the DNA level. But it's not the case that if there's a chemical that is carcinogenic and you have ingested it, that a mutation is going to result. It's, you know, your body can repair many, many of those mutations as they occur. What happens just as if we were getting a sunburn when we overwhelm those systems. If we overwhelm those systems and all of a sudden, right, there's more damage occurring faster than we can repair it. And then in the midst of that, the cell has to undergo cell division. Well, then you know, the, the cell's dividing. That's like that, that train is running down the road and it's going to divide. And in the process of DNA replication, if there's a mistake, the polymerases will just say, well, fuck it. I don't know what goes in there. I'm just going to throw something in so I can keep replicating because replicating is the job at hand. And so then if that happens, now a change has been made. Maybe instead of putting a couple of T's in there, we put a couple of C's or a C or a G or whatever we got put in there. Now you've got a mutation. And I think the estimates are, if I get this right, right off the top of my head, you have about 4 billion base pairs. And I think on average, each time a cell divides, you make about four mistakes, about one in a billion each time a cell divides. And so what you can see is that, again, over the course of a lifetime, these little mistakes can begin to accumulate. It's part of the aging process. But it is important to know, we're going to come back to it, that we do have mechanisms to repair DNA, again, down at the molecular level, just like we have mechanisms like melanin production to deal with UV light. How on earth, Richard, does any of this begin to now circle back around to epigenetics? I think when we're, we talk about tobacco use, and when we talk about alcohol use, I'm really you know, talking about like alcoholic type alcohol use, it's really chronic high level exposure. From epidemiology, we know that looking at the epigenetics of chronic smokers, we see very, very rapid aging of the epigenetic clock. We can see that experimentally. We can really at this point only hypothesize as to why that is and how that's working because we haven't proven it out. And, and you know what proof means to me. It means we've actually got data and we've proven it. So it's a pretty good hypothesis that says what we're probably doing there is we're overwhelming the body's DNA repair mechanisms. Uh, and as a result, we're accumulating damage to the genome and that is also showing up epigenetically. In other words, we're not only making mutations that impact the DNA sequence, but we're also making mutations that are impacting the ability to 
operate the hard drive. In other words, this coiling up and uncoiling of DNA that we now know is important in how we manage it. I mean, this is going to come back around to the, the whole idea of the poison is in the dosage, the, you know, the Morton salt shaker at the physiological level. Now let's try and in your mind's eye, take that all the way down inside a cell to the DNA level and realize that there are some things where, you know, low level exposure, it's just going to be like a little bit of salt on the tip of your tongue. But this chronic high level exposure, oh my goodness, we're overwhelming the systems to be able to take care of that. Yeah, there we are. Poison is in the dosage, just keeps coming back up. And the overwhelm, I think, is really important. And, you know, you know, I don't know that we need to go into this right here, but, you know, I'm, you know, I'm an example of some overwhelm, probably. And, you know, we go along in our lives and we every day we're making choices every moment and every maybe not over a moment, but every day we're making choices that have, you know, long term impact. And, there are probably some toxicologists who are getting worked up. But, you know, that's the other thing about what we're doing here is all conversations don't have to be agreeable. But let's take responsibility. Let's learn. Let's share. Let's further our interest and our curiosity. Yes. And so that actually, again, turns out to be a convenient segue into when we're thinking about these chronic high levels of exposure versus what I'll call intermittent low level exposures. What if those intermittent low levels exposures were actually healthy because they were actually turning on our DNA repair systems to make us more able to deal with DNA damage? Just like a sun tan, if you're tan, you're much less likely to sun burn. And so this is going to bring us back to Bruce Ames. And, you know, another thing listeners can do, they've certainly, I hope, gotten this idea that the poison is in the dosage. Bruce wrote a paper 25 or 30 years ago called Dietary Pesticides 99.9% All Natural. And what Bruce Ames did is he went back and he looked at all these phytochemicals in plants and he tested them through his famous Ames carcinogenicity assay. And what he found was that the overwhelming amount of carcinogens that you're exposed to on a daily basis, probably about a teaspoonful, well, 99.9% .9 of them are compounds that are naturally produced by plants. Okay, so let's stop and think of that. We're like, wait a second, Richard, you're telling me that plants are actually full of carcinogens, right? Compounds that can damage DNA, at least in the Bruce Ames assay. But epidemiologically, we also know that a plant-rich diet is correlated with low levels of cancer in the population. So how are we going to square those two seemingly discordant observations? And the answer is, we think that these plant carcinogens, right? I said they were there. I didn't say at what dose. They're there at very low levels. And so eating a plant-based diet is really this intermittent low level of exposure that is turning on your DNA repair systems. And there's a class of compounds that I think are going to be near and dear to your heart, Jeffrey. They're called sirtuins. And these are compounds that actually, they cause DNA to condense, right? They're, they're going to cause your DNA to wind up. They're produced by grapes. So grapes, like you've heard of resveratrol, perhaps, is a compound produced by red grapes. Blueberries have a lot of sirtuins in them. Uh, the acai berry. There was a, a drink there, um, Monavi. I don't know if they still make Monavi or sell Monavi. I don't know if they do or not. Um, but, you know, acai bears make, make a lot of things. 
And so if we stop and think about that for a minute, it might be, and this is, this is a hypothesis, this is not uh, proven science, it might be an interesting example of convergent evolution where we've historically you know, eaten a, a plant-based diet. And if there are carcinogens, as there are in a plant-based diet, then perhaps we would have evolved a response to say, well, there's also molecules in plants, sirtuins, that are going to signal us to condense up our DNA and actually protect it from those carcinogens, those low-level things. And we think, again, we're in the realm of hypothesis here, that that may be the case. You're basically giving yourself you know, kind of a healthy suntan at the DNA level that's going to put you in good stead. And certainly, you, you really can't argue with the epidemiological evidence. So that's an interesting hypothesis at the molecular level, but the epidemiological evidence at the population level is that a plant-based diet is very, very healthy for you. So by all means, eating that. This goes back to one of our other, uh, you know, epigenetics and nutrition, right? Explore the produce aisle. Get out there, plant-based diet. I don't think that we're suggesting it's an all-or-nothing proposition in life, right? The poison is in the dosage. A little bit of salt's not going to kill you. A lot of salt may. Get out there and shop the perimeter of the grocery store. Uh, you know, explore the produce aisle. We had a friend who piped in with a with a <laughs> something that he picked up the other day. You know, after having listened to an episode on you know epigenetics and nutrition, and you know, it thrilled me to know that one of our listeners was out putting things into practice. You know, listen and learn and and integrate discard where appropriate if something doesn't sound right or feel right and go drink a big glass of water <laughs> yeah go and drink drink plenty of water along the way yeah hydrate 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 uh, always always be hydrating somebody once told me always be hydrating always be hydrating always be hydrating <laughs> you know coming back full circle and and maybe finishing things up here you know we kind of got started talking about how people worry about these things especially, you know, soccer moms who are, you know, they're trying to do the right thing for their kids and for their families and whatnot. And don't grind on it quite so much. You know, the toxins that I worry about in society, smoking is a big one. You have 40 million Americans still smoke. Please stop. If you know somebody, get them some help. You know, overnutrition. You know, we've talked about it a little bit in previous episodes, but, you know, obesity in women in the United States is now a greater cancer risk than even smoking. We're eating too much. We're just eating too much. Yeah. And, and, you know, we're eating too much. We're eating too much of the wrong things. We're eating at the wrong time of day. We're doing a lot of things poorly. Close behind that, I worry about sedentary lifestyles. You know, you got to flush the system. You got to get some blood flow and you got to get some water in you and you got to move those things around and pump stuff through. And the skin does a beautiful job. Like I was sitting talking to one of my daughters, Taylor, yesterday, we were working on a project and she, as you know, anybody who's listened here is a crew athlete and trains like mad. And, you know, right now she's in a 12 week virtual training camp with her favorite coach. And the day before, I think she'd done something like an eight by two kilometer workout, you know, on the rowing machine, eight times two kilometers. Now you've piqued my curiosity. Uh, what was the rest interval between the, the two click rows? One minute. One minute. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we were sitting talking yesterday and, and, you know, it's almost, I don't want to compare it, but it's almost like military level training, right? She's working out two and three times a day. 
She's working out, you know, somewhere between an hour and a half and four hours a day. And she said to me, she said, Dad, there are a few things that feel as good as just, you know, when I work out and I've got the full body sweat. To bring that back to what we're talking about, you know, the skin, what a great organ it is. And, you know, it flushes, right? And she, in an earlier conversation, said, I think she drinks like five or six 40-ounce bottles of water a day. Now, granted, she's working out and just flushing and flushing and flushing. But to come back to sedentary, where, you know, we're not flushing, our skin's not doing one of the things that it's designed to do, right? Where, you know, we're sweating it out. And... It was fascinating to sit and listen to her because she's flushing for sure. But at the same time, through all of that working out, she's also creating some exhaust that the system needs to deal with. Absolutely right. So sedentary lifestyle, let's get up and out. You know, for me, you know, none of us are perfect. UV exposure. I probably don't use sunscreen perhaps as much as I ought to. You know, I live in Southern California. I like to ski. I'm up in the Sierra. I, you know, I'm surfing at the beach and I probably ought to use a little bit more sunscreen. And so that's something, you know, again, if you're asking yourself, what can I do? The judicious use of sunscreen, not overdoing it. And this is all advice we've all gotten before. I don't know. Maybe some people are in a way disappointed that, oh, it's not toxicants. It's not benzene residues. <laughs> no, it, it's probably not, right? It's, you know, those things exist and they're out there. And, you know, you can probably, if you're filling up the gas tank of your car in that split second from the time you take the nozzle out and you get a little whiff of gasoline, yeah, you're probably getting some of those, you know, aromatic organic compounds and whatnot in there. But it's fleeting. It's a very small intermittent dose. It's not like inhaling cigarette smoke, you know, at two packs a day. Yeah, chronically. It's easy to get confused. And let's just use UV exposure as an example, right? So vitamin D, we're producing vitamin D when we get 15 minutes of exposure. And that would be probably without sunscreen, right? Yeah. You know, there's some benefit there to getting a little more sun exposure is a good thing, but too much, then again, the poison is in the dosage. We find a little bit of balance. Like I find myself outdoors and go, you know, I'll get 15 minutes of sunshine without any sunscreen on. But, you know, as you know, I don't have any hair on my head. If I didn't put sunscreen on my dome, you know, I'd be torched, right? In a, in a very short amount of time. So, you know, I'll go outside and get some unprotected sun exposure, but then I'm covering up pretty well with sunscreen and a hat and things like that. So we got to figure out the balance. For sure. Let's not get in, into too much of a panic between toxins and toxicants, between this idea that, you know, if it's a man-made chemical, right? Those are almost like fear-mongering words. You see them used in some advertisements and things like, oh, these man-made chemicals, da 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 When we look at the top 10 most toxic compounds known to man, yeah, there's some nerve gas agents and things that, uh, you know, some human chemists have come up with, but five of the top 10 are Mother Nature's own, <laughs> for sure, right? <laughs> right? You, you sit there, you think about diphtheria toxin, cholera toxin, you know, various venoms and things like that. Oh, no, they're, you know, Mother Nature's pretty good at coming up with things that'll kill you. Wow. Dr. Richard Hamilton, I appreciate our conversations. This is the fifth in a series on epigenetics, and I have found it to be extremely enlightening, enjoyable. 
I think it's worth mentioning. I know it's worth mentioning. Prosper, your company, at liveprosperstrong.com. Direct-to-consumer epigenetic testing. You know, we don't want these episodes to be infomercials, but hey, you've got a great product out there. And if you go to liveprosperstrong.com and you enter promo code ATBS, you'll receive a, a generous discount on your first epigenetic test, which you can go to the website, check it out, doing great work. And I appreciate you doing that, Richard. That's a great startup that you're leading the charge on. Well, I appreciate that call out, Jeff. And as always, it's been a pleasure chatting. I'm just going to end by uh, wishing all the dads out there a happy Father's Day. And I'm going to go give mine a call. Yeah, that's fantastic. I appreciate it. For anybody listening, ATBS, the podcast, you can find us pretty much everywhere. If you're listening, you already know where to to listen to us. But um, Facebook, we have the ATBS podcast page and the ATBS, the podcast group. And my intention with the group is to, you know, engage in conversation and have various guests and uh, listeners be able to have more engagement. That's what the group is all about. So, you know, check us out there and who knows, maybe Dr. Richard Hamilton will chime in on questions and, and, uh, you know, your interactions there as well. So Richard, thank you as always. And thank you to my listeners for joining us on ATBS, the podcast. It's a great ride and love doing it. So thanks again. Great to be here, Jeff. Thanks. Thank you, sir. Take care. Thank you, Dr. Hamilton, for shedding light on toxins and the difference between toxins and toxicants and the poison is in the dosage and hydrate and all of the specifics that we get into. And it's super helpful to me. I hope you, the listeners, found that helpful and I hope you'll continue to come back. Support ATBS, the podcast, any way you're comfortable. If you'd share it, like it, subscribe, do all those wonderful things. I'm grateful. And in the meantime, stay out there, be healthy, be safe, be kind. We'll talk to you next time on ATBS, the podcast.